Welcome back to another episode of In the Aisle. As always, I'm your host, Christina. Thank you all for joining me here again today. We have a lot of great things to go over, particularly with the analysis that I promised you guys that I would give to you from part one, with the things we talked about there. And of course, the second part of the conversation I had with Caitlin Wright. This episode, of course, is going to go into detail about the For the People Act that I talked about in part one, as well as the cabinet confirmations we had specifically with Merrick Garland and analyzing the immigration policy of the Biden administration so far. Then, of course, you are going to hear the second part of the conversation that Caitlin and I got to have, which I'm really excited for. And honestly, listening back to it, I forgot how much I was laughing with her as we were having a conversation. And so I hope that you get some joy out of the things that we were talking about and get to learn a little bit too. Before I jump into anything, though, as I stated in last week's episode, I want to start introducing fun facts about myself back into these episodes because I think it's really important that you all get to know me a little bit too as we are going through this political journey together, we'll call it. So I decided that since last week was a political fun fact, this week will be a just a regular fun fact. And my fun fact this week is that I actually just got a puppy on Tuesday. Her name is Cannoli. She's a mini Bernadoodle and she is so cute. Like I, I've never had a dog before. And so it's been a lot of like learning with, in terms of like, I didn't even know dogs probably wouldn't know how to walk on a leash. Like it seems so easy to to think that you would have to teach a dog that, but it's been quite hard. And she is such a playful little thing. Like she loves to play tug of war and I, I just can't get enough of her. And I'm so excited to, to have her now for the spring and, and to see her grow. I mean, I've only had her for for like a few days now and she's already grown since we've gotten her like she's already bigger which is so weird like we all were looking at her yesterday and we're like huh she has grown even in like the the 96 hours that we've had her so it's been so fun with her and hopefully I can introduce her to you all maybe feature her on my Instagram So now that you've heard this week's fun fact, I am going to jump into the analysis for you, of course, starting with the For the People Act. All right, so let's start with the same-day voting registration nationwide. Now, like I said, this would actually be really beneficial to having more people turn out to vote, obviously, because if you're allowing them to do it the same day as voting and they haven't been registered, then naturally, of course, you're going to get more voters. You might be one of these people that I'm about to explain, but a lot of people actually tend to not pay attention to politics. I know, shocker. And I only point that out because there are a lot of people who, like me, like love paying attention to politics, love knowing what's going on, and enjoy it. But other people, of course, are sick of it. And honestly, I don't blame them. There are so many times where I want to tune out as well because I'm so sick of the partisanship down in DC and what they're talking about. And it just it just feels like a terrible train wreck that I'm watching half the time. And I'm sure a lot of you feel the same way too. But I've actually learned this in various classes I've taken in college that people, especially with elections, 
only start paying attention, I would say, up to two weeks before the election starts to make a decision on who they want to vote for. That's not to say that people haven't already made up their minds before that, but typically the average American tends to not pay attention to politics, like I said, up until a few weeks before the election. So if you're not paying attention and you're not aware of that, you're going to miss the opportunity you have to vote. And the way I can equate that to people who are like me and listening to this and love politics, imagine not watching anything in football, no games, no press conferences, nothing. And then just watching the NFC and AFC championship and the Super Bowl. That's kind of like what it is in terms of the best way I can equate it. When you have a situation like that with most Americans, you know, having this mindset, they tend to not know when they need to register to vote. If they're only tuning in a couple weeks before the election, then of course they're going to miss the deadline to register to vote. So in a lot of states, you know, it has flexibility like New Hampshire, of course, same day registration. But there are other states, too, that have you need to register six weeks before the election, sometimes two months before the election, sometimes even longer than that. And this directly affects Gen Z right now because you have a lot of people who, especially younger people, tend to not pay attention to politics. So this bill will, in this aspect, will directly impact, say, I would say younger generations and give them the chance to you know, if they forget to, to register to vote ahead of time, that's okay. They can do so on the same day as the election is taking place, which, again, I think is really wonderful. And I think it's something that's going to really benefit us and potentially have it so that more young people are turning out to vote and are participating in politics and their their government, which is a great thing, but is also intimidating to, I would say, the elderly population, as well as the Republican Party, because young people tend to vote blue. And there are so many young people right now that they could potentially outvote the the elderly population, so to speak. But before I get down that rabbit hole um, too much, I'm just going to leave it at that for now. And I hope this highlights, of course, why this provision in this bill would be such a good thing. Additionally, voting by mail and expanding that is also a really wonderful thing. And This would particularly benefit people who are slaves to their job, I would say. Because there are a lot of people who don't have the time to take off from work to be able to vote. So they tend not to vote. Additionally, depending on where you live in this country, your voting situation is extremely different. For example, I'm very fortunate to live in an area where the voting station I can go to is very well staffed. There isn't a long wait. I can pretty much walk in, vote, and then walk out. Some places, you might have seen this with the 2020 election, you have to wait hours to be able to cast a vote. A lot of the times, people don't have that, obviously have that time to be able to vote. So they just don't do it. And it tends to be the people, if they have to wait in those long lines, the type of person who can take the time off from work. So you have a group of people who tend to not be represented, and those tend to be the working class people, specifically people of color. So expanding the ability to to mail-in votes and absentee voting is huge and could re-enfranchise a whole group of people that have not been able to really participate in their own government up until this point. Now let's talk about limiting corporate donations to campaigns, which like if you remember in part one, I said was one of the things that I'm most excited about this bill. And here's the reason why. 
it basically is making it harder for corporations and companies to have their thumb over a politician. They're giving money so that the person, whoever they're donating to, can pay them back in the long run. And it's not like paying them back monetarily. It's in the form of favors. The best way I can explain this, so let's say Coca-Cola donates a million dollars to, we'll just make up a fake senator, Senator Kutherpali, because I've been thinking about the Big Bang Theory. So we're just going to throw <laughs> throw Kutherpali in this. Yeah, so let's say they donate a million dollars to Kutherpali's campaign. And they like tell him, good luck, remember us when you win. And then Senator Kutherpali wins. A year later, Coca-Cola can go back to Kutherpali and be like, hey, remember how we donated a million dollars to your campaign? Well, there's this legislation that is going through the Senate right now that would limit the amount of sugar we can put in our drinks. So we're going to need you to vote no against that. Of course, Senator Kutherpali could say, that goes against my beliefs. I am not going to do that. To which Coca-Cola could respond and be like, you know, that's tough because we gave you that money and you wouldn't be in office unless it was for us. So then Senator Kutherpali at that point has two options. He can either ignore Coke and vote with his morals or what he believes in, or he could side with Coke and then just choose to, to vote down the legislation, even if that legislation would be helpful to Americans across the country. If Kufrapali decided to not go for Coke and like side with them, then Coca-Cola, the next time they're running, can throw money at another candidate and make it so that it's hard for Senator Kutherpali to win the re-election. So then typically at this point, politicians are caught in a catch-22. They can either go against what they believe in and side with the people who voted for them, or they can vote with their gut in which their conscience and then risk losing the next election because, again, the companies can just go and donate to whoever they see fit and could donate to an opponent of theirs so that they lose their, their spot in Congress. So limiting that would be huge. And this kind of touches upon like PACs, which I'm not going to talk about yet, but this could pave the way for, for something like PACs or super PACs to also all right, so let's now move on to the cabinet confirmations that we've had this week. And if you recall, I specifically wanted to talk about Merrick Garland, who is now going to be our attorney general, of course, under the Biden administration. If you recall in part one, I said that he has been through the ringer, in my opinion, these last few years. And I was so happy to see that he is finally being recognized for his skill and is being put in a position that is and honestly worthy of him. And I was, again, really glad to see that he's our attorney general. I want to talk about his journey, specifically starting like in the Obama administration, because it connects a lot with, honestly, tr the Trump administration. And if you are somebody who doesn't pay attention to politics, I still can guarantee you that you still would have heard about some of the things that he's connected to, which is really important to port out. Additionally, Merrick's story touches upon a lot of other things with our government that um, I think is beneficial to talk about. So this is the direction that I really want to take this in today. Back in 2016, honestly, I would say about five years ago now, we had Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia die. Now, for those of you who don't know Antonin Scalia, all you need to know is that his death came as a shock to everybody. They were not expecting him 
to die while on the Supreme Court. And he is somebody who arguably one of the most conservative people on the Supreme Court at the time. So he, again, died in March of 2016. And of course, as we know, the presidential election won't be happening until November. I would say almost 300 days, I believe, to appoint somebody new. And this was a big deal because this was a chance to get somebody liberal on the court and potentially, you know, change the way the votes fall when the Supreme Court justices vote in Supreme Court cases. So Obama nominated Merrick Garland. And it was a very strategic move because Merrick was somebody, and honestly still is somebody, who is considered moderate. He was the best option to be able to appeal to the Senate, which does confirm Supreme Court nominations, especially a Senate that was a Republican majority. And this is the first time I remember learning who Mitch McConnell was. Because at the time, and as we know up until this year, Mitch McConnell was the majority leader in the Senate. So the Senate just decided to not hear the nomination for the Supreme Court. They basically ignored Obama and said, you know, a new president would be coming in four years, so we should wait until they're in office before we we elect somebody new. And the truth is, they were just pushing it out so that the Democrats wouldn't be able to put somebody on the Supreme Court. And some of you might be listening to this and thinking, that seems fair. It was an election year. They should wait and see, considering justices on the Supreme Court serve for their lifetime. And honestly, I would agree with you, except for the fact that we saw Amy Coney Barrett get pushed through to the Supreme Court with the Republican majority Senate. Now, having a woman on the Supreme Court and having that representation, regardless of her viewpoints, is great. Like it, it allows for more women to be added to the Supreme Court down the line. But poor Merrick, we had to wait almost 300 days in limbo before Trump became president to find out whether or not he could actually be, be a Supreme Court justice. And after the fact, he he unfortunately like couldn't do much because like imagine you could have had the chance to be ha- holding one of the most prestigious positions in our government. And you probably would have been a, confirmed to do so because of all of your accomplishments and experience that you have. But just because a group of people wanted to play politics that couldn't happen for you. Now we're fast forwarding through this. And basically at this point, Merrick like couldn't really do much. And he was kind of stuck. And fast forwarding now to 2021, where we had President Biden appoint him to the attorney general position. This was a big deal. It was finally his time to shine and finally a time for him to get recognized. And he passed with flying colors in the Senate. So that just goes to show you that a lot of these people, too, I will point out to derail myself for a second, are the same ones who could have voted for him five years ago. So they're like basically the same people, especially the Republicans, who basically said at the time we're not going to hear his confirmation and then had to look him in the face while they <laughs> confirmed for him to be the attorney general now of this country. So, again, the reason why I want to point out that story is that it just goes to show how toxic partisanship is. And I mean, at the end of the day, I can't deny it. The Republicans got what they wanted in the case of making sure that a new president would be the one to to bring 
a Supreme Court justice in Antonin Scalia's place. And it was somebody who was conservative. So they got what they wanted. But at what cost, really? Like, the partisanship needs to stop at some point. And I know this is very a very different direction than just talking about the cabinet confirmations. But it's something that is so important. And I thought with Merrick's story, it really highlights how bad partisanship is, especially again, when he was confirmed by pretty much the same people five years ago who said they wouldn't hear him or claim to not like him and not trust him enough to be Supreme. The last thing we'll talk about today before jumping into the second part of Caitlin's interview is, of course, the immigration policy that I brought up in part one. And there's actually been an update as of today as I'm recording this that really grinded my gears and it's something that it really makes me mad and I'm very excited to share the information with you because I'm sure it's going to make you mad too. Honestly, I think it helps to highlight how bad this situation is because as I said in part one, I tried to be as objective as I could in giving you the facts of what's been going on at the border as well as the immigration policy of the White House. But now this is the analysis, so I can be as blunt and opinionated as I I would like to, which is what I'm planning on doing. What I learned today, and I did fact check this, this is true. You have migrant children in detention centers right now who have not showered since they got there, have been not well-fed, have been not taken care of, and who have been, been denied the opportunity to contact their parents, which is appalling. Imagine that. Imagine being a child who, honestly, at that point as a child, do you, would you understand immigration policy? I don't think so. I would definitely not have. If I was just told that there was a place that would be give me a better life and all I have to do is, is get there, and then I finally get there and then I'm getting treated like crap, like I wouldn't understand why I would be detained. And it's, it's so heartbreaking because the conditions of these detention centers, as I said, are extremely poor. They're basically kids being kept in cages and they're, those cages are stuffed. They're, and, I, and as I said in part one, too, I think this is going to be a really disgusting, terrible stain on this country's history. But the, the point of pointing this out and to talking about it is that it really highlights how crappy of a job the Biden administration is doing in terms of immigration policy. Because as I said, you know, they're being wishy-washy. They're saying one thing on how they want to be more progressive in terms of immigration policy. They want to be more friendly and welcoming. But then they're doing things like this where they're continuing the detention centers and they're not improving those conditions and they're treating the children like prisoners, not being allowed to contact their parents, not being allowed to to shower, not being given the attention that they need. I can't imagine how scary and scarring that must be for these kids right now. Because like I said, there's no way that they could have ever foreseen this happening to them. And it's probably, there's no way that they would have ever understood that that this is what we're waiting for them if they tried to get into this country. Now, whatever your immigration stance is, I think we can all agree that the mistreatment of children should never happen. The fact that the Biden administration isn't even hiding that they're doing this is just really unfortunate and really questionable. And it's honestly something that really makes me question 
the immigration policy moving forward. Because Biden made a lot of promises, like I said, you know, he he wants to improve the green card process. He wants to let more people into this country. But if they can't even get the detention centers right, and these things, these detention centers are are pretty new under the Trump administration. It, it's not like an institution that's been standing for 50 years. They get a lot easier to just start undoing that policy, even with COVID. Like, I don't think even COVID would be an excuse for them not to be able to pursue this. But the fact that it just hasn't started and hasn't been done, and they're just hoping that people aren't going to notice, is shameful. It truly is. And like I said, regardless of what you believe in, I think we can all agree that these kids deserve better. They truly do. And again, it's something I'm very disappointed in with the Biden administration. The other component to this is, you know, the statement that came from the White House saying that they need more time, essentially, by saying that the immigrants should come back when we're better equipped to handle this as a country or when, you know, we have more resources, we have a stronger immigration policy. Like, I don't know about you, but I don't even know what that means. <laughs> and if you do have an idea of what that means, please feel free to shoot me a DM at In The Isle Podcast to enlighten me because I've been grappling with this now for days and I just kind of keep thinking, like, how do you measure that? Like, is there a time frame for when you have that? Are you looking to implement new policy that you just haven't told us about yet? So it, it just seems like it's just such a cop-out from having to, to solve the situation at hand when, when in terms of these detention centers and people wanting to come into this country, but we don't have the support, I guess, to give them to help them out. And the last thing I'll say about immigration policy today is that, like, I could understand if the Biden administration was more transparent and they said, you know what, we said we get it done now, this is what we have for the future, and we're going to get to it when we can get to it. Like, I would respect that more. I mean, I wouldn't be happy about it because people are are suffering now, but I could at least respect him. Like, you know what, he's being communicative. But it doesn't feel like that. And honestly, it feels like we're just being lied to and they're hoping that we don't notice the terrible conditions that are existing right now with the detention centers and with people trying to get into this country. So in that respect, I I feel like it's, again, a cop-out for them not to really give us anything right now. And I know that, of course, we have the pandemic and they're focusing on that, but they can focus on multiple things at the same time. And there are several moments in this country's history where that has actually happened. Like, for example, with um, women getting the right to vote, they campaigned and picketed for that during World War I, and they were able to focus on both areas at that time. And granted, that was a that was a freaking world war. <laughs> I mean, the pandemic is terrible, but... Um, you know, we're starting to now really get a grasp on it, I would say, and start making progress in, in getting vaccinations out there. So this can be something that can be brought to his attention and something that they could be working on, but they're just choosing not to at this time, which is, again, extremely disappointing to be seeing. That wraps up this week's analysis. I hope you learned a lot. And I'm sure, I feel like some of these things we we are going to have to touch on again as updates come down the line. So it's likely not the last time we're going to hear about immigration policy and the For the People Act in particular. But now let's get to the part which is why I'm sure you're here today, the conversation that I had with Caitlin.
I wanted to ask about your experience now that you have been working in the state house for five years now or so. What is it like being a conservative young woman, specifically like being a young woman, I would say, in such a blue liberal state where also I know Massachusetts state house is predominantly like a male environment. The representatives and senators are males as well as the staffers. So if you can touch upon that, I would really appreciate it. I think everyone would love to hear what you have to say. I I don't being a conservative woman in the state house that doesn't really stick out too much to me i mean people know i'm a republican because i work for a republican but aside from that it's not really been too much of an issue i will say at least in my own experience and i can't speak to how others have experienced working at the state house but it seems like a lot of staffers and offices are very secluded and they don't want to socialize so you might make friends with the people that are in your office space but a lot of times it doesn't go outside of that. So I've been, you know, very lucky to have good sweet mates and um, they've been from all parties. So I've had a couple, I think I've had three Republicans in, in our office space and, you know, each of their staffers I've made friends with and same with the Democrats. So it's really been fine with that. But aside from that, at least in my own experience, people don't really branch out too much. And and that could be my fault too. I suppose I don't leave my office as much as I should to, to go make friends. I do know, um, <laughs> at least with the state house, they have the Progressive Caucus and the Progressive Caucus staffers are pretty united, at least from what I see on the outside looking in. Like I know that they have like this big group chat going and they do like monthly, well, when COVID wasn't a thing, at least they would do monthly meetings where they, you know, maybe go out to a bar and all meet up or something like that. So they have the right strategy in terms of making friends and bridging, like making connections and bridging gaps that you probably would have if you weren't doing social activities like that with your group. Uh, But I just don't see it like, especially in our own caucus, I do not see it that much at all. I mean, me and one of my coworkers, or I should say one of my coworkers and I have always talked about trying to recreate that in the Republican caucus Except now that I'm saying this out loud, it appears that we're all talk, no action, because we've talked about it for a while and have done nothing. Um, So, you know, maybe once we all get back in person, we'll figure that out. But um, I don't know. So to to your question about being a woman in the state house where there's a lot of men, I have not really noticed too much of any issue with that. You know, obviously you go in a room and there's a lot more men than there is women. Uh, I think like the only thing and the only problem I've ever encountered is Another woman might say to you, hey, see that person over there? Don't get stuck in an elevator with him. And I think like, you know, you probably get that in any sort of workspace, particularly politics. But I I jumped into working in, in government right at the like the height of the Me Too movement. And so I think that's why I saw that a lot. But that's really the only thing that sticks out to me when thinking about being in this like male dominated environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's really honestly great to hear. I think um that's actually a vibe I get at the Massachusetts (laughs) State House like you know like of course you're gonna have party divide but at least in terms of being men versus women like I don't want to call it that but sometimes it can feel like that like I think they work very hard to make it an environment where everybody feels comfortable and safe so I'm really glad that that's that's what you're feeling too when you're working there but it's so funny you mentioned (laughs) the thing about the elevator because like on a side note, one of my professors at St. A's, um, she literally told us a story one time when she was working on Capitol Hill about how you literally learned what people to not get into elevators with. <laughs> like, I don't know what it is about an elevator that just like triggers things in people. But like, it's it's so interesting that like the women tend to look out for each other regardless of party and be like, hey, like, 
you see that person over there like <laughs> don't go anywhere near or don't be yeah. alone with them or something like that and it's just like there's there's also like like I said, goes beyond party. I think there's this sense of camaraderie and politics yeah, I, when it comes I to women. Yeah, I agree with that. Where, Needless to say, I yeah. try to opt to take the stairs most often. <laughs> so I just don't get myself in any sort of situation <laughs> like that. <laughs> good. Good. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. But yeah, I think, um, and I, this is what personally I, I love about you so much, Caitlin, is like you, I think I, I identify you as somebody who has that camaraderie mentality. I mean, for those of you, you probably don't have Caitlin on social media. You probably never heard of Caitlin before, but Caitlin tends to be somebody who will celebrate a woman in politics accomplishments, regardless of their party, which is something, like I said, I really respect about you. Like I remember when Kamala Harris became the vice president, you had this really beautiful post about like, Hey, like we're different parties. Like I don't really agree with her, but this is a big day for women everywhere and we should be supporting her. And I thought that was really cool. Just want to throw that in there as well. I think it's really yeah, cool that you I do mean, stuff like no that too. Just celebrating, you know, a person of one party because when one woman succeeds, we all succeed. And to be very cliche, we're not going to break that glass ceiling by just sticking to one side of the aisle. I would love to see more Republican mm-hmm. women. Would I have loved to have seen a Republican woman in that position? Absolutely. But that's, you know, having a Democrat in that position is a great start. And that means someday it's possible for all of us. And if we want to elect more women, yeah. we have to celebrate all of the victories, regardless of party. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. Well said, Caitlin. Um, so the the last area that I want to touch on with you today, I want to talk about specifically women in like state and local government, because I, a lot of times like on my podcast, I really focus on like everything at the national level. But, you know, there's there's so much that happens in state and local. And arguably, I think that that is the stuff that impacts you the most sometimes because that's directly connects to you and where you're living in. So I want to hear a little bit, you know, what you think about like women in state and local government, as well as, of course, how they work to, to basically keep things running. Yeah, and, like, absolutely. Like so again, to be kind of cliche, I mean, there's that saying by uh, Tip O'Neill from Massachusetts that, you know, all politics is local. And, and that could not be more true because a lot of people and particularly women get their start in politics on a local level, school boards, city councils, selectmen. And if you don't get that start, you're less likely to further climb up the ladder. And you know, I think we see it. We see it a lot often in the Massachusetts House of Representatives. There's a lot of women that have gotten their start on a school board, select board, doing something like that. And I know recently just got a new speaker in Massachusetts, the first time in like 12 years. So Massachusetts does not often switch speakerships. So this is a big deal. Yeah, big deal. Uh, I mean, it's still a Democrat, so it's not <laughs> that big of a deal. If, if a Republican ever became speaker in Massachusetts, I would think hell had frozen over because that's like never going to happen. But anyway, um, <laughs> there's actually I, I did not know this and you may not know this either, Christina, but at the state house in the House chamber, there's the sacred cod, which I'm, I, I know you know about the sacred cod. Oh, of course. Yeah. Let's say so to pause quickly. Yeah, Caitlin, like, for the what? people who don't cod? know about the sacred cod, you can give them that. So give them the background story is, on that. Has a rich fishing industry, uh, and so to celebrate our fishing industry, I think that is the purpose that there's the sacred cod in the house chamber, and it's kind of comical because the Senate also has their own fish. They have the holy mackerel <laughs> that hangs from the ceiling there. So we have the holy mackerel <laughs> in the Senate and the sacred cod in the House. But I recently learned that the way the cod is positioned in the House, so it's if it like the head of the cod hangs in one direction, it means the Democrats are in control of the chamber. And if it hangs in the other direction, it means the Republicans are in control of the chamber. Now, the cod has not been moved Whoa. since like the 1950s. So I don't 
don't know if it probably can't move anymore. <laughs> but anyway, the whole point of bringing up the speakership change was that, and I, earlier this week, it was very timely that this came in. Apparently at this point now, there are 87 women in leadership positions across the country in state legislatures. And that's a record high. Because we had a new speaker, we saw a woman elevate it to a position of power in Massachusetts that we've never seen before. So uh, Claire Cronin of Brockton, she is a state representative and she used to be the chair of the Judiciary Committee. But under the new speaker, Ron Mariano, she was appointed to be the first female majority leader in Massachusetts history. So that is, I mean, that's huge. We've never seen anything like that happen before in Massachusetts. And we also have another woman who is the speaker pro tem. And now previously under Speaker DeLeo, there was a woman that was speaker pro tem. That's Patricia Haddad of Somerset. But now we have Kate Hogan of Stowe as the speaker pro tem. And apparently I did not know this, but she is the first LGBTQ speaker pro tem in Massachusetts history. So we made some you know, pretty good yeah. progress and and broke some records there uh, with, I guess, Majority Leader Cronin, now not Representative Cronin, and Speaker Pro Tem Hogan. So that's good news. And um, I get email alerts from the National Council of State Legislatures. That's how nerdy I am, right? So just to see those improvement, and I think it said too that there was 10 states where women were, were Speaker of the House. So that's just huge to see these sort of improvements, you know, and little by little, 2018 midterms, these things will change. I know, I think it was in the, Nevada became the first state with the uh, first female majority legislature. So that's awesome. And I checked on mm-hmm. the stats before I joined in on the call and it was it's 60% now, which is huge. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I mean, and to think they're the first female majority, it only took how many years to get to that point, but it's better than nothing. And it's a start. And if Nevada can do it, we can do that elsewhere. And I was thinking too, when I looked that up, I remember when we were at the conference, when Peggy, who was there. So for you guys that don't know who Peggy is, uh, Peggy. Peggy Gilmore, she was a state senator in New Hampshire. And she was uh, one of the women that attended. Well, I don't want to say she attended the conference. She was a fur at the conference, but I don't know if I'm going to, oh, faculty in residence. That's what it stands for. She was a state senator. And I believe she said at one point during her tenure in the state Senate, they had a female majority state Senate. So, you know, not quite the whole body, not both chambers, but still that's pretty huge too. And I'm sure there are other states across the country that at least have a female majority one chamber legislature. So I don't know, someday, someday maybe they'll all be that way. Yeah. And I think it, it speaks too to a lot about like what's changing in this country, because it, like if you look back at the last like 50 years or so, like you can see waves and trends and when women are elected into office and high, higher numbers than in like previous years. And a lot of the time that corresponds with like social movements that are going on where like we saw like, especially the in 2018 that you were referring to, you know, a lot of women were elected to office because there was the mm-hmm. women's march that we had, for example, like things like that triggered a lot more women seeing politics as well, an crazy, avenue that crazy they can too go to down. think because and, I so yeah. in undergrad and grad school I focused a lot on research and women in politics and the last big year we had of women being elected to office was 1992 following the, you know the Clarence Thomas appointment to the mm-hmm. Supreme Court. yeah that was the year of the, the year of 1992 the I mean we weren't even born yet <laughs> like that's pretty crazy but you know <laughs> thankfully we were able to get another year of the women in 2018 and now again in 2020. So hopefully that sets a new trend where every year we'll elect more women to office. Yeah. And I, I'm with you on that. It's one of the things I really, I hope for, because, you know, as, as really great that the numbers are growing, like you mentioned, it's still quite small, the amount of like space, so to speak, that women take up in the political world. Like, I think people really focus on the the federal level and think, Oh, like, look how many women are in the house or in the Senate. But I, 
it really starts with the local and state government to get women yeah. involved because like you said it's a pipeline to, to working up that ladder so if we don't see it in local and state government we right. can't expect and to I see it too, on a federal like, level either what sets it really in my mind and and paints the bigger picture is if you think about it like women are 51 percent of the united states population but we don't even come close to that in either congress or state legislatures you know in mm -hmm. congress it's 26.7 percent of women that's just a little over a quarter, which I guess is good, but that's not great, especially for 51% of the population. And we do a little bit better in state legislatures at 30.6%. But still, I mean, that is just so low when you think that we make up more than half of the U.S. population and we're not deciding the policy that affects our lives. <laughs> I really am speechless because I... I can't agree with that more, honestly. I think that's one of the things, too, that blows my mind. And I, it's so interesting. Like, I want to point out two things from, like, what you said. Because I think it, it pushes against the status quo, which makes people uncomfortable. Because, you know, other groups have had the majority this whole time. And I think seeing more women get elected to, to office is actually, like, scary for some people. Because it's change. I mean, to me, in my opinion, it's positive change. I'm sure you would agree with me. But I'm sure a lot of people in this country don't see it that way. And the other thing that I think is really important to remember about this is that I think women a lot of the times underestimate their, their own power and their own, like, abilities. Because, I mean, not, not only with running for office, but with voting. Like, I think a lot of women don't realize how much power they have as, like, a group to make change. And well, to, you posted to, this to on, on your Instagram heard. for In the Aisle the other day about a woman has to be asked at least seven times before she agrees to run for mm -hmm. office. And that's, I mean, that's absolutely true. I, I, I've had people ask me to consider running and maybe someday. Right now, it's not the time in my life, but that's my answer. Like, you know, I it's not for me right now. But in any sort of women in politics book I've ever read for school, it's you ask a guy that, and most often, and I'm not trying to sound sexist, but more often than not, the guy is going to say, oh, you think I'd be great at that? Sure, I'll do it. Um, but we but we think about it. And <laughs> no, you, like, you're maybe so right. It's just that we're a little bit more practical when it comes to that thinking. Like, I don't know, but we second guess ourselves. And I think it's not, it's not just politics, too. It's, it's jobs. It's everyday life. A couple of weeks ago, well, when I was in the job market, back in uh, November to January, you know, I'd have my cousin, she works with the federal government, send me jobs over and she'd be like, you should apply for this. And it'd be something like government and politics related, but something I had never done before. I'm like, I'm not qualified for that. She goes, you have to stop thinking you're not qualified. Would a guy say that? <laughs> so now, now I try to look at it that way. <laughs> it's, it's so true though. And it really touches on something that starts when we we're kids, because again, like I said, men, often get parents I don't even think realize they do this at this point but they often like push the boys more towards like politics and like girls more towards traditional fields and as we grow up and as we are experiencing the world and like how our society is like it basically has us second guess ourselves all the time and like what we have to do so naturally that's going to spill over into politics and you know for anyone listening to like i think it's so important to hear this but remember like what we're talking about isn't specific to politics per se like what caitlin was saying this is like can be in any job field where women tend to you know not climb up like the corporate ladder so to speak or like things like that because they do second guess themselves and they do have other things that they have to be worrying about as opposed to just like going for it so take it upon yourselves man woman doesn't matter who's listening go go for go for your goals and like try try those things and push yourself because quite honestly we are reaching a point where you know we shouldn't have to be afraid of of 
chasing our dreams. Just a I little inspiration <laughs> I'm throwing in here. Like I'm some sort of like motivational speaker. Yeah. So th- Caitlin, thank you so much for, for today. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Um, now, as we're starting to, to wrap things up, I wanted to ask you, as I ask everybody, everybody <laughs> about this on in the aisle, can you name for me one Democrat currently that you respect yeah, and okay, can you explain to me why? <laughs> Not that. Can, can I pick you, Christina? <laughs> oh my god yeah, yeah that's a softball i can't I, do that i, I have cannot, to come up with somebody not, <laughs> yeah. um I, I don't know i guess like the first person that comes to mind for me is elizabeth warren so she's i mean everybody knows who elizabeth warren is she's a senator from massachusetts ran for president and everything she's probably the furthest from what i agree with politically i wouldn't i don't think there's anything her and i could probably check a box off together that we agree with but I admire her gumption and I feel like she's very passionate about the things she does. She's very fiery. And, and someday like, you know, maybe I hope to be the, the Republican version of her. I don't know. That might be saying it a little bit too much, but she really gets the job done for the things that she believes in. And I can appreciate that and value that a lot. And I think if her and I agreed politically, I would definitely, definitely be a big supporter, but Alas, I don't think Elizabeth Warren will ever become a Republican. But hey, you know, Hillary Clinton was a Republican back in the day. So may, maybe Elizabeth Warren will That's become a true. Republican in, in her older years. We'll see. <laughs> Interesting. Well, that that is a great answer, Caitlin, because I, and again, this goes back to what I was saying earlier. And this is something that I, I hope we can all do in such a partisan world we're living in is to some, you need to sometimes humanize somebody and, you know, put their politics like, out of the way for a second look at them as a person and i think that helps too with like bipartisanship and whatnot so that was a really wonderful answer caitlin i appreciate um yeah you taking the time really to talk awesome. to us today I'm glad on you did this, and i'm very glad you asked me to do this christina oh of course you were literally the first <laughs> I, person i thought of for women's history month so i'm so glad you did <laughs> Of course. Um, so before we answer, do, do you have yes. any final thoughts if you're that you'd out like there to share? Guys, make sure guys, women, anybody out there, make sure you ask a female to run for office because you could be that seventh person to ask her and this could be the time she runs. Actually, Caitlin, I'll say um, this is good. <laughs> Count this one as your number one, me <laughs> saying you should run for office. Caitlin, if if you'd like to be number two, number two for somebody yeah. out there listening, if you're, if you're feel free to jump in and say office, so. <laughs> don't discount it, explore it, and you should definitely do it someday in the future because we need a diverse set of voices out there and your voice should be heard. Exactly. So there you go. You're officially at two. <laughs> Woo. Two people have now asked you to run for office and all you did was listen to a podcast today. So, <laughs> But anyways, Caitlin, thank you so much. It's been so fun talking to you today. And I look I know. forward Me to too. the next time we can actually <laughs> Can't meet wait. in person and catch up. I hope you enjoyed that conversation that we had and listening to the last part of it. It honestly is something that still brings a smile to my face when I listen back to on it because I just truly, Caitlin's one of those people that she truly is somebody that I can have a, like a real conversation with. I mean, granted, we are in different political parties, but that doesn't stop us from from talking about things that we agree on and can find common ground on. And of course, you know, things that we disagree on too and having civilized discussion in terms of that. And to wrap things up, she and I talked about something after we got, we did this interview, we got on, back on the phone with each other just to like wrap things up and, you know, touch base about like everything we talked about. And she made a really great point that I want to throw in here that 
you may think that you have nothing in common with somebody, but all it takes is just sitting down and like sharing your bubble, so to speak, she called it, and seeing if it overlaps with someone else. And I would promise you nine times out of 10 that it does overlap. As easy as it is to think that we look at somebody, the opposite party of us, and we think, oh, I have nothing in common with them. I don't even want to associate with them. I can't believe they believe what they believe in. Sometimes it takes just going the extra step to humanize somebody in order to to learn about them, in order to have the civilized conversation and to find out that, hey, you know what? We're not really that different. Granted, there are extremes. I'm sure if you put a super conservative person and an extremely liberal person in a room, there would be less things in common between the two. But I think this is just a really great example of the conversation I had with her that we can find things that we agree with even though we are in different parties. So I'm going to challenge all of you to, if you know somebody in your life that you have different viewpoints, like really take a moment to sit down and, and reflect and to think like about the things you do have in common. Because at the end of the day, that, that I think personally that is what makes us stronger is when we acknowledge our differences and find common ground in order to connect with one another as opposed to keep pushing this partisan mindset that we all have right now in this country. We are at the end of yet another episode of In the Aisle. Things coming up, I'm actually doing my second interview for this month today, so be on the lookout for that to be released before the end of the month. Coincidentally, her name is also Caitlin. <laughs> so we're going to have two Caitlins this month, both from different parties. And I'm really looking forward to the conversation I'm going to have with her today because it touches upon a few things that I, we, Caitlin and I chatted about, but we'll definitely have some new elements that I'm sure you all are going to be really interested in hearing. Be on the lookout again this Wednesday for another Woman's Wednesday fun fact that I'll put on the in my Instagram at In the Isle Podcast. And other than that, you know the drill. Feel free to follow, like, share the whole shebang. As always, I have been your host, Christina. It is an absolute pleasure making this podcast for you all. And I can't wait for you all to join me next week again in the aisle. Have a wonderful week, everybody. Take care.